hello, and welcome to Hot Take Think Tank. I'm Kier. And I'm Liam. This week we're talking about social media no longer promoting traditional news, the ideas being peddled by influential right-wing intellectuals, and a Canadian bookstore chain selling sex toys and barbecues alongside books. But first we're going to dive into Kier's latest essay entitled Moralizing Desire is a Mistake. Kier, do you want to introduce this piece? Yeah, sure. Um, so back when I was very involved in the social justice subculture, um, I was uh, very aware of this idea that desire is political, um, that it sort of reflects your values, um, that you can change your desire at will, and that not doing so makes you a bad person. Um, so if you're not attracted to someone with a marginalized identity, that probably means you're a bigot. Um, so <laughs> I get into this in detail, uh, in the mm -hmm. essay, um, that I do think it's reasonable for us to reflect on our desires and, you know, make sure we're not passing people up for superficial reasons, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but I think mm -hmm. social justice orthodoxy goes a step further right, by really insisting that having preferences at all is problematic. Um, and that's sort of like what I take issue with, right? The idea that if you don't find a member of X group attractive, you're harboring some type of contempt or even hatred for that group. So. Yeah, <laughs> a very interesting essay. <laughs> and I, I, got, I feel like I got to say right off the top that it's the whole idea of it is very strange to me because I travel in different social circles than you do and than you did at this time but like the idea of discussing this sort of thing with like your social group seems very strange to me mm -hmm. uh just like at face value I've, I've never like asked my friends like uh about their uh, you know preferences in this regard and uh, mm -hmm. I don't bring up my own. <laughs> it seems like a, it seems strikes me as a private thing. Uh, so it's weird to think of a, a place where it's both public and like scrutinized. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it is a personal thing. I think it is a private uh -huh. thing, right? And <laughs> but um, you must not have at the at the time. Well, that's the or it thing didn't seem is. To be. Yeah, the idea that, you know, the personal is political is like a huge mm -hmm. rallying cry and second wave feminism. And yeah. it's never really gone away. And, you know, I'm I'm sure there were like lots of um, mm. important arguments that were made on that basis. Right. Like, I think talking about like the labor that mothers and women do in the home, for example. Right. Or even I think just like um, like physical abuse situations. I think it used to be. Mm considered like oh it happens you know whatever happens in your own home is your own affairs uh exactly yeah and so that that was a good thing to sort of turn the eye of the state upon <laughs> yeah but um absolutely yeah maybe it can go too far <laughs> yeah it feels <laughs> like you know if it's gotten to the point where like yeah people are making their dating decisions uh based on being worried about uh, appearing to be a bad person like that's that's getting a little strange um mm -hmm. and i definitely heard from a number of people who had stories yeah. um with this experience um there was one person on instagram uh steph dogfoot who said thanks for saying this 
as an Asian person who happens to be dating a white man, it's been really fascinating and also disgusting realizing how I'm judged, belittled, and made to understand that I'm a person with bad preferences for who I happen to date by both the right and the left and both feminists mm. and men's rights activists. <laughs> and like, this is like, yeah. <laughs> this is what I, you know, sometimes feel a little bit crazy about when I'm talking to someone who doesn't have much experience in the social justice subculture. It's mm -hmm. like <laughs> the social justice subculture like discourages mixed race dating if one of those people is white right like Whoa. that's <laughs> that's what, and that's what this huh. person is describing right is yeah, that like totally. as an asian person dating a white person like they've made a terrible mistake how did we get <laughs> here <laughs> it does it feels like one of those areas where it's like the two ends of the political spectrum have like wrapped around and gotten to the same place <laughs> right yeah. where it's like, like you mentioned the idea of like um uh like re-education you know if your if your desires are misplaced which seems like a conversion therapy thing uh just yeah. like a different uh a different thing that's being re-educated but still like you know getting at uh something that most people don't think of themselves as like uh choosing or being in control of but like trying to mold that to an acceptable uh way to be in the in the community exactly yeah i mean i got a message from an ex-catholic who talked about how well it fit into the guilt <laughs> that they already struggle with right and hmm. yeah no there's like a real um it's it's a real problem i mean there were multiple people talking about how this moralization of desire has given cover to predators and abusers. And even one person said that mm. like social justice ideals put her in a vulnerable position with a dangerous person, you know? Hmm. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, in those cases, like, I think it's more like, you know, a person with bad intentions is going to use the tools at their disposal to do that, right? Like, totally. yeah. I don't think caring about social justice is what makes <laughs> you into an abuser. But um, I think anything that is, like, making it um, harder for people to, like, gauge how they're really feeling and, like, make a decision for themselves based on that is, like, probably a bad idea. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it feels like a lot of this, it, it just made me think of, like how uncomfortable it would be to be so in your own thoughts and in your head about uh like relationship stuff sort of there's it feels like a, a weird place to uh not that you can never you know think about a relationship but the idea that you need to like um run it through a bunch of criteria and like think mm -hmm. of it from like a, a political lens or like a you know uh, think of it from all these different angles, right? To make sure that it uh, checks all the boxes. Does it does seem like it would remove you from like the immediate experience of being with a person, mm -hmm. um, which um, probably sends a lot of also meaningful signs, right? Like if someone checks all the boxes but just ekes you out a bit, uh, mm -hmm. you can probably listen to the being eked out, uh, <laughs> even <laughs> if without you know, hopefully without worrying about. Uh, what political ramifications being eked out by someone in that category will have. 
because uh, that's weird. <laughs> well, absolutely. And I think here's the thing is like, if the goal is to like, you know, have more people, uh, a wider variety of people like having um, satisfying hookups or satisfying relationships or whatever, mm. like that's not what happens <laughs> when we moralize <laughs> in this way. Right. And there's another really interesting comment uh, from someone on Instagram by the username of please read Marks. And <laughs> she said, uh, I am a fat woman. When I lived in Portland, I ended up sleeping with several people that were not attracted to fat women. They basically had sex with me to diversify their portfolio, which was weirdly a thing, at least back then, around 2014. Having sex with people that aren't attracted to you feels like shit. It was triggering and humiliating and severely damaged my self-esteem. I'd much rather have someone reject me. I've also had sex with people to avoid being accused of bigotry. It felt creepy because it was. What a time. <laughs> That's wild. Right? Wow. Like, nobody wins. Like, if you think you're doing someone a favor <laughs> by having sex with them, you're not. Like, and they can tell, no. right? Like, no, totally. <laughs> yeah, it's this weird, yeah. like, I, I, with a lot of these stories that you have from, like, your time in this culture, it makes me think it just feels like a lot of rules that make sense to apply like in the HR department of a huge company, but do not make any sense to apply in like a normal human interaction. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> like there are, there are uh, parts of society that need to worry about discrimination. Um, right. Like where, where if they discriminate uh, on purpose or by accident, it will like cause undue harm. Um, you know, like government services or, um, mm -hmm. or you know, hiring decisions at a company, that sort of thing. But um, to bring all of those same, like, uh, uh, tools of analysis into how you interact with other humans on, like, a person-to-person -person level seems very strange. <laughs> it's extremely strange. It's not normal for anyone who's still <laughs> doing this. It's not normal. <laughs> and, you know, I also think that it, like it really confuses things because like you don't have to be attracted to someone to treat them with respect right to totally. <laughs> you know be a good human around them right and and we shouldn't make being respectful contingent on being attracted to someone right like those things yeah. it's good if they're separate <laughs> like um that's yeah so the idea totally. that like a personal attraction like actually means that you're harboring hatred is just like such a phenomenal leap to me and it just yeah. like ignores like the richness and complexity of like our actual real love lives and how we mm. meet people and like you know what i mean like it's there's like there's totally. a secret sauce there that's just sort <laughs> of unknowable to some degree and and i yeah. think like it just feels like, you know, when I was in the social justice subculture, I think I was just looking to, like, always make the right decision, right? And, like, how yeah. can I just simplify things and make enough rules that I'll mm -hmm. just never make the wrong choice, right? Totally. It no, I, I work, think though. <laughs> a lot of it is, like, um, uh, like something I've come to terms with because I, I have never been in that, that sort of subculture. But I definitely was sort of an in-my-head kind of guy who was trying to think through every problem and like find the right answer and it took me a while to come to terms with the fact that like there are aspects of being a human that uh don't 
like the, the words are you know pale uh trying to capture um mm-hmm. and the things are just sometimes too too complicated and there's too much going on to be able to like think through things logically like that that you can't always make like a pro and con list and figure out the answer to like profound human questions right <laughs> Um, but I feel like a lot of a lot of social justice stuff is trying to take the the very complicated and make it very simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that that's sort of that's like the the appeal of it maybe is that you want to be a good person and it's complicated what that means. But here is like a, a culture that will offer you very clear instructions. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and they maybe don't work to actually be a good person, but uh feeling like oh if i just follow this set of rules everything will be good uh i can see i can see the attraction to that well and this is how i can tell if someone else is good right Mm. like do (laughs) they use the same language that i use right like it's yeah it's um i think it is there's like a a grasping at community a grasping at like safety and 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 (laughs) like a you know a better world but i just think that it's extremely misguided you know and in general i think like moralizing desire does not have the desired consequences and i don't (laughs) think it does in this case either yeah totally and and by the sounds of those comments you received uh yeah it doesn't sound like it i don't think your your conclusion is unique it doesn't sound like no. Uh, it sounds like it's mostly bad for everyone. <laughs> yeah, I, I have not heard from anyone who uh, feels that it benefited them, but that could be my mm. echo chamber. So, <laughs> Totally. And speaking of uh, news on social media, uh, mm-hmm. next up we have an article called The Great Social Media News Collapse, written by Charlie Wartzell for The Atlantic. Uh, The big social media platforms have recently shifted away from showing news articles to their users, and users seem pleased with the changes. Uh, The idea put forth in this article is that the incentives that social media algorithms set up for the news led it to become less appealing for readers, and that readers now prefer their feeds without news. Uh, But the idea of a society without journalism or without an informed populace seems like something worth worrying about. Uh, so Kier, maybe to kick off the discussion, I'm curious, uh, how you interact with social media and the news these days? Oh boy, good question. Um, (laughs) yeah, I usually start off my day by reading the news on a news site. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, that's the CBC, uh, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. So with Um, no, uh, no social media between you and your source then? No. Um, and then, but then I do go on social media after that. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, and so, yeah, I definitely do click through and read, uh, articles, news articles that I find on there. Um, but I also find myself sometimes like trying to do like a little bit of fact checking if something sounds like too wild or, um, Yeah. yeah, just sets off an alarm. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely I definitely read some news through social media, but I find like if I only do that, there's a lot that I miss out on because you know whatever the topic yeah. of the week is, that's you know the majority of what the social media links are going to be about. Totally. Yeah, interesting. I, I'm also uh, I I read a fair bit of news, but I don't get almost any of it from social media i'm not a big social media guy <laughs> um but i do like to stay stay informed about things 
Um, and there was an interesting statistic they brought up that, um, you know, a, a poll asking people whether or not they uh, follow the news closely. Uh, and the most recent number was 38% of American adults follow the news closely, uh, down from 52% just uh, four years ago. So it's yeah. uh, a, a notable drop in following the news, uh, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah, that is a big drop. Because, like, my impression from this article is that, like, we're at a bit of a crossroads with social media and the news that, like, you know, mm-hmm. for the last, I don't know, maybe decade, um, social media has been, like, crucial to news companies. And they've even, like, yeah. made a lot of decisions on, like, how to market their news uh, with you know, the social media companies and their algorithms in mind. Um, mm-hmm. And they've definitely seen like a significant drop in how much of their web traffic is coming from social media. And even yeah. um, Google seems to be sending less traffic to a lot of news sites. So that's interesting, right? Because it's sort of a moment where it's like, well, the news like didn't really get <laughs> better <laughs> when it was so reliant on social media, right? Like, because it became yeah. all about clicks and it became about like mm-hmm. sort of coming up with like the most outrageous headlines that you could. And, and also like quantity became really prioritized at news organizations. Totally. Um, so, you know, like it would be really cool if some better way of funding news and also getting news to people came forward, you know, because... Mm-hmm. Maybe it could be a good thing that social media has less of a grip on the news, but it really could go either way at this point, I think. Totally. I, f- I feel like there's um, like a sense, I don't know, from, from the social media company perspective, I feel like the idea is kind of that news is just like a hobby that some people have. Um, you know, if someone's into reading the news, they get shown the news, whereas if someone's into like model trains, they get shown videos about model trains right or if they're into uh celebrities they get to see videos of celebrities um but i feel like the you know uh people people that 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 news does have like an additional value beyond being just like a thing that some people are into like catching up on the latest gossip about uh you know what the prime minister is up to uh like that there's something more important about the news and that Mm -hmm. there would be something to be worried about if uh, a large number of people gave up on uh, consuming any news. Absolutely. Uh, And so is it like, is there um, a responsibility on the shoulders of social media to, I I feel like that's, that's sort of been the story of like, since Trump was elected was um, like when that happened, a lot of people, sort of blamed the social media companies for letting it happen uh you mm-hmm. know promoting the stories uh that got him a lot of coverage and then uh they spent a few years trying to like tweak the algorithms to uh you know be less biased or or have less misinformation that sort of thing but it it does it sounds like from this article that the the plan has sort of changed for for the social media companies and the plan now is uh to get out of that business like that it's it's more hassle than it's worth and yeah. uh, they sort of don't want to be in the business of catering to uh, people who want to read the news anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it kind of makes sense. Like, there have been some, I mean, the Rohingya um, ethnic cleansing is the 
the example mm. that most people give in Myanmar of like, yeah. and, and it certainly seems that yes, Facebook made that much worse in what it was taking down and what it was allowing to spread. Um, mm. And so, yeah, it does, it feels like it's a real ethical conundrum with these platforms, right? Because most of them say, we're just a platform. The content that's on yeah. our platforms is not our responsibility, right? And I think there's mm -hmm. been enough public pushback to that idea that like, they're like, okay, well, <laughs> maybe we have a role. But again, like, I feel like, you know, sort of the risk mitigation on their part is like, gonna be more important to them than like, you know, uh, helping the 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 jur journalism serve its democratic function for example like that's totally. that's not a priority that any social media company has <laughs> well and it, and it's such a hard like mushy idea too because it's like I, I think twitter now is getting in a bunch of trouble for the communication it ha had with like the biden white house where the the white house was sort of sending messages uh you know being like, hey, this is misinformation. Can you take down this article? That sort of thing, and uh, you know that it's like, is that what you hope for when you want like a more responsible social media company, or is that like the the government overstepping, right, trying to, you know, uh, trample on people's free speech or whatever it is? It's uh, it yeah. doesn't like it's it's a lot of things that are very easy to say, right? That like uh, social media should, you know, help help have a flourishing democracy. Um, but when it comes to like actually making and implementing policies uh, for the social media companies, uh, it's it's very hard to think of anything that would actually like make everyone happy uh, mm -hmm. with what they're doing. No, absolutely. And I read this really fascinating article that was on persuasion, the persuasion substack. This is probably a couple of years ago now, mm -hmm. um, but it really stuck with me because it was talking about like the dangers of being too aggressive in. Uh, addressing misinformation and mm. one of the big problems is we don't know yet what is misinformation and what isn't yeah. um, to a significant degree right like um, at our present moment like if we go back right in our past like there were mm -hmm. moments where someone said you know I think the earth is round and everyone else <laughs> was like that's misinformation right totally. and so like if we become too overzealous in our censorship we will inevitably unintentionally <laughs> be censoring things that that do develop to be true right um, totally. and yeah, that we I mean, need I, to I leave think... a lot of room for like discussion and debate yeah, I, I think some stuff happened with uh, like around the COVID pandemic to do with that. I think mm. like one finding that was, uh, yeah, I don't think it was like fully blocked, but was sort of downplayed by the algorithms had to do with like the efficacy of uh, like school closures, elementary school closures, mm. that sort of thing, um, which, you know, they, the companies were worried that, you know, any, uh, you don't want to be criticizing government policy to do with uh lockdowns but uh i think that it turns out that those that specific part of it wasn't very effective like closing elementary schools uh, didn't uh save very many lives and kind of messed up the education of a bunch of young kids <laughs> mm -hmm. so it's but um yeah so in retrospect like maybe it would have been better if that message had spread wider um to you know help galvanize people to change that policy while it was still happening but mm -hmm. uh 
it, you know, it didn't play out that way, thanks uh, to the social media networks trying to do the right thing <laughs> and uh, exactly you know, like stick with the stick with the facts, right? What the you know what the majority of scientists were saying at the time. Yeah, uh, totally. And like, there will always be conspiracy theorists that are trying to like push absolutely ridiculous things into the sphere of like legitimate discussion, <laughs> you know. And so, like, that also <laughs> needs to be noticed and uh, addressed because, like, yeah, you don't have to like again have someone um, arguing that the world is flat every time someone says the world is round for like neutrality or whatever <laughs> right like there are things totally. that are like established you know and that's sort of like a way that you actually can take a decently functioning democratic news hmm. uh, ecosystem and start to like create a lot of doubt around it right like if you have these conspiracy yeah. theories at its edges and then you can say why aren't you addressing such and such you know you mm -hmm. must be hiding <laughs> hiding this this story you know like that's um that happened recently in hungary with victor orban and this like george soros mm. conspiracy theories that were going around and um yeah they they really tried to make the media look as if they were being dishonest and secretive and hiding things you know against the public mm. interest by accusing them of not covering these ridiculous conspiracy theories that had no evidence right <laughs> <laughs> totally yeah, yeah so there's like strange things like that conspiracy theories can do right it's not really about getting everyone to believe them but it is about totally. like causing more and more distrust in like who you should be listening to yeah totally and I, I feel like there are some some groups of people who also like just hear that the uh like the number of news consumers going down uh that could just that itself could be a win for some people Right, like, mm -hmm. um, if you sort of don't want uh, people, you know, if you don't think what is going on in the news is positive for you, uh, just, like, making the news unappealing and making it not worth believing anyway, uh, like, beyond, you know, what news stories get shown, uh, news stories not being shown sort of is also uh, a political thing in its its own right. Yeah, Absolutely. One thing that I thought was interesting in this article, um, there was Ben Smith of Semaphore who was saying mm -hmm. that people seem to want authoritative journalism from multiple sources in one place. And he mentioned Apple News, Flipboard, and Smart News as, I guess, apps that mm. are pursuing that. Right. And um, that really got me thinking about, yeah, like platforms that really center news from multiple well-regarded sources. It sounds like really hmm. great to me like I, I would love that app um but I guess I was wondering like what sort of uptake would that have right like would it be able to attract these people that are getting their news from non-authoritative sources on TikTok and yeah. Instagram or is that just going to <laughs> appeal to people who are already reading the news um like is there a way to actually improve news literacy and entertain hmm. people or are those just yeah. like kind of at odds <laughs> well i feel like that's sort of what the what the whole article is about is the idea that like you know to try and make news appealing like to make it compete on social networks with all the other kind of content uh that the news had to get like really um like aggressive and clickbaity and like anger inducing uh and that sort of it, it couldn't compete on its uh, merits of being like good journalism 
uh, at least not in like the algorithmic world where a lot of people choose to spend their time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but yeah, I feel I feel like there's something to. It's like if people do value high quality news sources, then there must be some way to like extract that value and uh, sell them the news. <laughs> You'd think mm-hmm. at least, but um, yeah, it's, it's sort of like how how big is that market? Um, and is it big enough to fund all the journalism that you hope will happen? Yeah, absolutely. You know, something like Substack has um, been great in a lot of ways, but uh, the nature of it prioritizes quantity over quality, right? Like the newsletters mm. that tend to do well are putting out really consistent content. Yeah. Um, totally. And, you know, quality investigative journalism is really slow and it's really expensive, <laughs> right? <laughs> totally. So, well, and it might be like a story is broken after three years of investigating, mm-hmm. right? Like there, that's sort of a, a something that I don't, see being supported by like any internet uh internet based publication right Mm -hmm. like the idea of you know you're going to be on this beat and you're going to look into this for a very long time and get back to us when the story is ready um Mm -hmm. you know on newspapers right they can (laughs) when they have money to spare they can spend money on those journalists and eventually they'll have a cover story but uh they don't need to turn in any articles until then but um yeah, it's true that I don't see sort of how that could fit into, like, the internet news cycle. Yeah. I, yeah, I was a little bit heartened at the end of the article, um, learning that The Atlantic has actually increased um, their paid subscribers 10% from a year earlier. Um, mm-hmm. So that's cool. Like, I don't yeah. think, you know... It's, no, it's I think... all doom and gloom. And I, I just hope that we'll continue to see innovation, right? And, and that totally. something something has to emerge. Because <laughs> I do believe, like, journalism is, is crucial. It's crucial to democracy. And, yeah. you know, there's got to be a way of keeping it going. And I think there are enough people that are passionate enough about that that we'll figure it out one way or another. <laughs> totally. Yeah, no, I, I feel like in, in the, like, the broad, <laughs> the very broad context of, like, the whole news industry is I I feel like it um like how things were came from a time of like printing presses like literally uh like you had to pay a lot of money to get thousands of copies of your newspaper printed and then put them in newsstands or deliver them to people um and so they had to sort of have this very broad base uh appeal and they were also like a, a geographic play right like each town would have its its own newspaper uh, and then with the internet, uh, every newspaper had to compete with every other newspaper, uh, which destroyed a lot of business models, right? Because all of a sudden uh, mm-hmm. you're competing like the New York Times is competing against the Vancouver Sun and every other newspaper, right? So uh, any sort of like repeating of stories, uh, you're probably going to like the most authoritative one uh, instead of like the, the local rewrite of it, mm-hmm. uh, which w- was... You know, it, it decimated a lot of businesses, right? A lot of journalists lost their jobs because of that. Um, but there is, like, there is still the demand for it. And uh, it's sort of like a, a big market consolidation, I guess you could hope, is what has happened, right? And and the, the big papers like The Atlantic and The New York Times, I think, do have healthy subscription businesses and do still have investigative journalists actually breaking stories, right? 
Yeah, for sure. I just, I don't think consolidation is necessarily a good thing though, right? Because we do have like important local stories that are going untold with all of these local newspapers going under and it's like, you know, it's not glamorous, you know, it, but it could have like really serious consequences for the people that live there. Right. And those are the stories that like are just going untold right now. And, you know, they're stories that we're never going to see in the New York times. So we'll see. I I guess I I wonder things turn around (laughs) with the way, uh, I understand your brain working. I'm curious sort of like if it's this thing that provides the societal good, do you see like a role for the state in news media? Like, is that, should that well, be how it works? I mean, we have that, right? I read yeah, the you, CBC. you read the CBC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the CBC is partially government funded. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I see a role for that. Um, and I, uh, when I was younger, I was involved in the Montreal media co-op and the Vancouver media mm-hmm. co-op as well. Um, and that was like a national network of reader funded Um, publications um, mainly online but there was also a a magazine called the Dominion Um, and so yeah that went on for quite a while Um, I'm not entirely clear as to why it ended uh, but Mm -hmm. a lot of the people involved in that are now involved in the breach media project uh, which is also reader funded so I think that you know that that's is going to be part of the solution is that like if we value quality journalism as much as we say we do, you know, are we willing to pay for it? And, you know, yeah. that's the type of thing that, you know, can can lead to better independent journalism um, when, you know, if we can, like, unshackle newsrooms from corporate advertising and also from, like, the needs <laughs> of these social media algorithms, you know, I think that we could get some really valuable things out of it. But I think you know, one of the big obstacles is just that we've come to expect things for free on the internet, right? Like, it's a problem in the music industry. (laughs) It's a problem in film. (laughs) Like, it's a problem across the board. So, yeah, it's a tricky one. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, I hope they figure it all out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I hope they solve that soon. That'd be nice. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Um, Yeah, Liam, I wanted to ask you, do you remember uh, Mm -hmm. when we were witnessing January 6th take place in real time? Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I listened, I remember listening like very expectantly to the daily from the new york times for like the next week because i wanted every detail i could get about it (laughs) i also Mm. remember it happened the day before my birthday so that was my one distraction was that uh it was my birthday (laughs) oh yeah that would (laughs) sway the tides a bit yeah Mm -hmm. i remember like when like right after the breach happened like i think we were both on discord like typing back and forth about it Mm -hmm. and um i remember there was this moment where it felt like it could go any way, you know? And I remember yeah. you seemed like more confident than I was that like, you know, these, mm. these safeguards would come into play and that, mm-hmm. you know, this would be an unsuccessful thing. And I felt a bit less confident on that because I still think, I, I still thought it was likely that it wouldn't work, but I mm-hmm. thought like, well, people think that before coups happen sometimes, right? Like, yeah, and sure. and that it really can be that you know, uh, if that if that coup leader like has the right people, yeah, 
supporting them, right? Like the head of the Capitol yeah. Police plus, you know, the head of the D.C. military plus, you know, mm-hmm. this guy and this guy. Like things can go a really unexpected way. And and I think, you know, obviously January 6th did not get close to a successful coup. Um, yeah. And I've even seen some reasonable mockery you know like the democrats want to have like a a yearly remembrance of it and so on (laughs) you know and on the Mm. one hand that feels like very silly because you know it it all worked out in the end but on the other hand it's like i think um it really did illuminate that like there are significant like anti-democratic forces on the right in the united states and that that needs to be taken seriously yeah yeah and to be honest i i've like i i do remember being like pretty like you know worried on the day but not that worried that like the wrong president would end up being the president but i feel like in with what i've learned since then i am now more worried about what happened because i don't know i feel like on the day i sort of thought it was just like a riot um but it turns out there was like way more intentional planning uh that went into it then right i think we knew about at the time like there there it, it wasn't just like a a chaotic mess like there was an actual plan that people were putting uh into motion less so i guess with the riot than with the uh you know trying to reject the electoral college votes or whatever it was but uh yeah no there was there was an actual coup attempt i think <laughs> mm-hmm yeah, and uh, this next article that's by Damon Linker for the New York Times uh, really speaks to this stuff. It's called Get to Know the Influential Conservative Intellectuals Who Help Explain GOP Extremism. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> I I realized like pretty recently that I didn't really have a good grasp on like what fascism is. And that, like, I was hearing it thrown around so much, right? Like, I was hearing one leftist call another leftist a fascist because they disagreed (laughs) about something, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I was seeing a lot of cry wolf. But I was also thinking, like, I don't know if I'd recognize it if I saw the real thing. I'm not sure what, like, the real thing looks like, right? So, like, are people being catastrophic? Are people being, like, rightfully concerned, Mm. you know? And so I actually read this book, How Fascism Works, The Politics Mm. of Us and Them by Jason Stanley, who's a philosophy professor at Yale. And um, so that book was just like really kind of on my mind as I as I read this article. Um, So, yeah, the the article kind of begins by um, talking about how like we really shouldn't be complacent about the shift in the GOP um, Mm -hmm. towards like kind of like authoritarian strongman um, type politics. Um, Yeah. And I thought Linker said something interesting here. He said, the efforts to overturn the 2020 election failed. We're told that's because the institutions held. But it's more accurate to say that most of the individuals holding powerful positions within those institutions, the White House, the Pentagon, the courts, election officials in Georgia and other states, sided with the Constitution over Mr. Trump's desire to remain in power. But what if key individuals decided differently the next time they're faced with this kind of choice? What if they have come to believe that the country is in such dire straits, has reached a state of apocalyptic decadence, that democracy is a luxury we can no longer afford? 
So (laughs) this article basically uh, then kind of introduces the cast of people, um, many of whom are like very, very well-regarded professors. They're at prestigious universities. They're at think tanks. Um, They're also Mm -hmm. like very widely read by Republican politicians and Republican voters um, and, you know, even invited on to interview or interview podcasts and this sort of thing. Um, this cast of characters mm-hmm. that is really uh, seeking to convince people that uh, the U.S. is, you know, at the verge of collapse, right? That there's yeah. just this rot that's like taken out the whole thing, you know, and democracy has failed us miserably. Um, mm-hmm. And the only thing left to do is to install a powerful leader who will do absolutely whatever it takes right. to kind of bring the nation back to glory, which, according yeah. to the book I just read on fascism, is playbook <laughs> rhetoric for a fascist state. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Straight up. Um, yeah. yeah, shall I Shall I go on or do you have any comments so far, Liam? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. I, I haven't read a book specifically about fascism, but I do. I'm a big fan of democracy, <laughs> and uh, and one of the things I I can't remember where I came across the idea, but an idea that I really like is that part of why democracy is such a good system is that it gives like a nonviolent way to overthrow the state. Yes. Uh, so like, if you have ideas that are like strongly contrary to uh the current government if you can convince people around you that you are right and the government is wrong uh you can like organize and without any bloodshed (laughs) you can win the election and change the laws and uh change the system right (laughs) and that's fantastic because it leads to uh not having coups uh and it just leads to like a tremendous amount of stability right that uh the government like continues to run uh from election to election uh but yeah this sort of rhetoric about the like democracy having failed i don't know i i can't help but read it as like people who have beliefs that are too out there to think that they can win through elections right right like if if um Obviously, it's not easy to, like, amend the Constitution in America, but, like, it is possible. You just have to win, you know, what is it, like, 67 seats of the Senate, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, which is very hard to do. But that's sort of the idea of it, is that uh, to make big changes, you have to really convince a huge chunk of the the population. So, Mm -hmm. it's yeah, it's just this weird, like, it's this weird posturing of strength, like, that we're going to overthrow things. Um, but I feel like it just, it reads so, um, so weak that they don't think they can like just win the election and do it that way. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That like the only way to get these ideas into government, uh, you know, you're never actually going to convince people that that's the right way to do things. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. Right. Is like, yeah, like, because there's there's no evidence that the USA is on the verge of collapse, right? Like that's not true by basically 
any totally. measure that you can yeah, think you asked, of. You asked if I could do like a little research <laughs> into whether or not America is a failed or failing state. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> it's sort of a comical question uh, by any <laughs> like measurable... Uh, other, I, I'd say, other than January 6th, that was like the closest thing to a failed, a, fa- a failing state, although the fact that it didn't succeed makes it seem more like a successful state. Mm-hmm. But um, it's like, it's the biggest economy in the world, uh, mm-hmm. and it's growing quickly, or uh, growing at a reasonable rate, and has a very dynamic labor market. Uh, like when people lose jobs, they can often find new jobs. <laughs> Uh, it has lots of foreign investment, uh, has really low illiteracy rates. It has, uh, a good disaster response, access to clean water, electricity and roads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, um, I don't know. It felt like when, when you compare this United States to other like highly developed nations, uh, you can be left wanting for a lot mm-hmm. of things like better access to healthcare. But when you compare the United States to a failed state, it's uh, night and day. <laughs> they just don't like, compare. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like that. There are courts and law and uh, uh, an economy <laughs> and like yeah, elections that happen regularly and the government changes based on who wins them. Like it's uh, yeah. There's no, no there's... absolutely. <laughs> it's just yeah. It's it's total myth. And I think like it's funny because you know these people aren't talking about like real problems either right like they're not really talking about like poverty they're not talking about like oh we need better health care right like (laughs) these people like it seems like they're talking about some sort of like moral religious spiritual failure a metaphysical failure right like the fall of western civilization um more so than they're talking about yeah anything like measurable right and that is another part of fascist rhetoric is you know you take Mm. your ethnic or uh religious or racial majority and you convince them that they're being persecuted right um that that christians are under attack that white people are under attack um and so we have some uh star characters that are making this type of case should we go through Um, them (laughs) yeah let's get to it uh so we have curtis yarvin who is a (laughs) self-proclaimed monarchist who believes america's regime is best described as a theocratic oligarchy Uh so (laughs) It's it's like it's just it's a weird like lack of awareness about like because these are words that apply to other countries yeah we have theocratic oligarchies (laughs) yeah and they're not they <laughs> like you you, there's no live there probably <laughs> <laughs> there isn't like freedom of religion in them it's like this weird like exactly tr- it's trying to compare like um being murdered for believing in the wrong god to like not having christmas on your starbucks cup or whatever yeah. it is right it's like this this absurd like like an analogy kind of but to the point where it's you've lost you've lost touch with what that actually means <laughs> yeah absolutely well we'll actually come back to that idea um in a second mm-hmm. um yeah curtis yarvin thinks that uh this is a quote from the article an elite class of progressive quote priests ensconced in executive branch agencies the universities elite media and other leading institutions of civil society promulgate and enforce a distorted and self-serving version of reality that illegitimately justifies their real their rule 
So what that sounds like to me, right, <laughs> is that like democracy is a facade, right? That people right. aren't like voting for Democrats out of their own free will. They're mm-hmm. voting for Democrats because they've like been brainwashed or manipulated by these like sinister progressive forces, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, that like just the idea that like, yeah, it's a, it is a false democracy. So really, what is there even to save at that point? Like, what are you defending? <laughs> you know, <Right>. like <laughs> clearly someone yeah, needs to come in and clear this up. Totally. It's this weird vision of like... um of the of i don't know of yourself as the only like conscious being around and everyone else is like these uh unconscious drones who do the bidding of the uh elite or whatever mm-hmm. um which just i don't know it just doesn't track for me because i've never met one of these mindless drones who just does the bidding of the elite it seems like everyone has their own complex life going on and makes the best decisions they can <laughs> Uh, which is that it's also like much this, more weird, common. <laughs> this weird mix of I don't know because <laughs> usually the right is the side that's like in favor of individual freedoms and that sort of thing mm-hmm. um, and the left is more in favor of like helping people uh, and, you know and, and maybe intervening a bit more like with, with regulations to keep them safe and that sort of thing so the idea that I don't know these right wing people are uh are so worried about the malleability of everyone uh Mm -hmm. i don't know yeah it's a weird it's a weird ideology (laughs) yeah well and here's the thing and and uh i think it even gets into this later in the article but there's just the idea that like um most people in america aren't true americans right right like that actually there's all these people right like trans people are probably not real americans immigrants are probably not real americans um probably even democrats and progressives are not real americans right right and again like you're appealing to like this one very specific but very large group of people and saying Mm -hmm. that like they're being stolen from when the when the democrats are in power right because they're the only ones that actually like are entitled (laughs) to anything really um so that's like that's sort of like what the mind trick is is that like yeah you you want people to have freedom you want people like you to have freedom right and like your freedom can be infringed upon by someone else gaining rights which sounds Hmm. like so strange right but again like you brought up like this idea of like christian persecution being like this massive uh Mm. thing that's happening in the the united states even though like you can't point to like any labor camps you can't point to like any you know like uh pogroms or like uh it's just it's not um there's no torture of of christians that i'm aware of like and the reason i'm mentioning these things is because stephen wolf who wrote the case for christian nationalism is mentioned in the article um Mm -hmm. and he um actually i'm not sure if it was him but uh, someone was talking about in the article about comparing like contemporary Christians in the United States to Eastern European Christians living under Soviet tyranny. So right. I looked into that, right? And it's like, uh-huh. yeah, there's evidence of Orthodox priests and believers being tortured, being executed, sent to labor camps, being institutionalized, yeah. mental institutions, right? Right, like, right. This it, is... it was actually made illegal, I believe, in Soviet yeah. Russia to uh, have a religion. Uh, 
broadly speaking. <laughs> right. And like, like so was a, that's, yeah. that's who they're comparing themselves to. Right. Which like, again, like if anyone wants to send me a link about this Christian persecution that I'm not aware of, please do. Because I think, I think the kind of story it's about is like teachers not being able to lead their public school class in prayer. Yeah. I think that's the sort of like news story that is pointed to as uh, like the state uh, crushing people's religious freedoms. Well, yeah, I think Which you're right. Which is a very different thing. <laughs> yeah, and like Stephen Wolf, he um, believes that America lives in a gynocracy. That right, uh, that was a new term for me. What a terrible! <laughs> I would have been happy to go my whole life without ever hearing that. <laughs> well, and this kind of gets to what he's his mindset is right because mm-hmm. he thinks that like men are emasculated by. Mm-hmm believing in feminine virtues such as empathy fairness and equality like that those qualities in a man (laughs) are inherently suspect right right? yeah and like the long list of female presidents obviously points to this problem (laughs) (laughs) exactly we just can't get a man elected no matter what we do (laughs) (laughs) wild it's Wild. so amazing, but it really, it feels like, you know, there really is this whole network of, of thinkers that are really sort of reinforcing each other and, and platforming each other and even like one-upping each other, right? Like yeah. um, seeing just how, just how wild they can get. Um, totally. And I feel there's that other issue that always comes up, the, uh, like the falling birth rate is hmm. such a weird issue to see people's takes on. Because it's like, it's it's this pretty standard thing that happens in every, like, as economies develop, the birth rate tends to go down, uh, like, pretty pretty consistently. Uh, and it's happening in the United States as well. And it's, but some people are just so convinced that it's like a, like, it's a gynocracy problem. <laughs> right. Like, that, like, men used to understand that they needed to have a bunch of children, but now they don't, and they're all weak, and they can't make babies anymore. And totally. it's just this weird, like, it's just very weird. I, well, I really and it's, don't. <laughs> it's just completely absent any type of, like, actual material or economic understanding at all, too, right? Because it's like, totally. if you go out on the street and ask young people why they're not having kids, they'll give you reasons, right? Like, their income is too yeah. low, you know, they are worried about affording health. Like, there's, like, very specific yeah, well, yeah. reasons. And, like, the reason that people have more children in impoverished countries is that, like, there's... uh like you need a child to be of working age when you get old so that you are taken care of that sort of thing right and and places with higher infant mortality you need to have more children because you you know might lose some of them uh Mm -hmm. so it's not it's yeah it's not that mysterious and it's not it doesn't seem to like uh correlate with like (laughs) you know how feminine people are uh it's yeah it's just this weird like pretty (laughs) universal uh trend that is like uh really politicized by some people i guess people who you know it fits their narrative somehow yeah well and you know sperm counts have been going down and that is like Mm. a concerning and strange thing right but like putting all of this meaning into it when you have no evidence for it is pretty wild yeah um i was wondering liam have you Mm. heard of the bronze age pervert no this guy was new to me <laughs> ah, okay uh, so, what about, had you heard about him before 
I have definitely heard about him. Yeah, okay. his book like sold a ridiculous amount. Uh, mm. His book, Bronze Age Mindset, which was sold in 2018, uh-huh. but was published in 2018. Um, it was huge. Yeah, um, among like alt right, hard right, uh, you know, yeah. young people, young men specifically. Um, so it. Bronze Age Pervert is the pseudonym for a person who is probably Kostin a la Mariu, uh, who is a Romanian-American writer and philosopher for mm-hmm. the far right. And he just is straight up, uh, believes that democracy is to blame for society's ills, along with women. Um, yes. <laughs> he said, uh, I believe in fascism or something worse. I believe it in rule by a military cast of men who would be able to guide society toward a morality of eugenics. So this, <laughs> <laughs> this part was really wild. Like this, it got like the first few were also presenting ideas that seemed uh, off base to me, shall we say? <laughs> but mm. this this guy really uh, seems to have gone off off the deep end i I don't know (laughs) like yeah uh truly nonsense well and it's Uh, funny too because he does write in this really trollish fashion where you're like you could almost be read as satire but the the problem is is that people take him at his word right like the amount of influence he has the people reading bronze age mindset like are not like (laughs) <laughs> looking for like the layers totally. of social commentary in it they're they're using it like as a guidebook for the for shaping their you know ideas yeah. of how to run a place um and totally. yeah like it was yeah it's it it the the influence of that book cannot be overstated <laughs> i don't think and then he recently yeah. self-published his doctoral dissertation which was uh-huh. entitled selective breeding and the birth of philosophy <laughs> Um, and that reached number 23 on uh, Amazon uh, in mid-September. So <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> good for you. Um, yeah. I think like, you know, so to kind of get to the end of the article, um, mm-hmm. Linker is saying, you know, like how alarmed should we be? You know, how influential are these yeah. people? You know, because it is a small number and they are like way out there. Mm-hmm. Um. But I liked what Linker had to say about that, which is that Mm -hmm. much like the idea behind conspiracy theories is not necessarily getting everyone to believe them, but to to foment a general mistrust. I think he Linker's arguing that, you know, these these intellectual provocateurs, what they're trying to do is widen the window of what's acceptable to talk about and advocate Mm. for. Right. And that's something that Trump is really known for as well. Um, Yeah. Right. Like once we start having like eugenics back in the conversation and the idea of like who deserves things and who doesn't and um, like that, that is what likely is the goal of these people is to just, you know, stretch things and push things, you know, as much as possible. And I I think that that is what we're seeing in the modern day GOP. Totally. And I I do feel like another part of it is a lot of the arguments um, that are, you know, explained in this article, it's like they, they start with a flawed premise and then immediately move on to like make a point that builds on it. Um, which I feel like, I, I don't know, like debating um, that Western civilization had its greatest achievements far in the past, uh, right? And that today is a garbage world. 
Uh, that's from the Bronze Age pervert. <laughs> it's like, um, I feel like when you start your argument with that and then you move on to discuss like how to solve it, you like leave behind the question of like, wait, was that part true? Was mm-hmm. the greatest achievements in the past? Right? Because it's, uh, I wouldn't agree with that part. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, it's, yeah, like moving the discussion from that, like, okay, well, we all know that current day is garbage and everyone is, it's all terrible. Uh, mm-hmm. So the question is, how do we deal with it? And it's like, yeah, you can totally, um, yeah, like miss, I don't know, miss, miss things. <laughs> I, I Yeah. I saw this. You can kind of tic- set a new baseline, right? For yeah. For like, yeah, what we all understand to be true, right? Totally. And, and sort of like what content you come across, like what will you, like you were saying at the top of the episode where you will like see stories on social media and you have to like go double check them like you do that because you have like a baseline understanding of how the world is and um when something seems to not align you want to make sure that it's true right so it's, mm-hmm. I, I i saw this tiktok video many months ago that stuck with me it just came to mind now where um it said that it was like someone saying that they'd like run the numbers on this and that thanks to modern day inflation uh, people were currently poorer than they were during the Great Depression. Hmm. hmm. Which is is so <laughs> far from true. <laughs> we're all like so rich compared to then. Like the Great Depression was like a quarter of people who wanted jobs couldn't have them. And like ev- yeah. all wages were falling for everything. And like people couldn't afford uh, food. And not that the economy right now is perfect, but like it's it's not close at all um but like that (laughs) i felt like i'd like fallen into a different dimension because like the comments on the video weren't about that they were like yeah things really are bad now and it's just (laughs) this weird like (laughs) like um it's just this place that you can get to if you i don't know consume certain subset of media um where you can read things about how uh, Western civilization's greatest accomplishments were a long time ago and just be like, yeah, of course, we all know that. <laughs> yeah, that's a given, right? You see it enough times. Like, yeah, it's it's definitely something that, that you could start to take for granted. And yeah, who totally. knows? Who knows where you could go from there, what you could normalize? Yeah, I did. I also sure. briefly uh, wanted to mention just um, there was the, the question of sort of that came up for me was about you know, how does this compare to, you know, extreme political conversations in the past? Uh, and I did I did a little research and did come across that there were several groups uh, in America uh, at the start of World War II, before America got involved, who were advocating for a uh, more Hitler-like system in America mm. uh, as like, uh, look how good it's going over there. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so it's, I don't know. It is very scary, but it might have been very scary for a long time, and uh, we've made it this far. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I just thought that was, I guess, in the name of uh, putting things in their right historical context. It's not the first time people have uh, <laughs> thought that maybe democracy was bad and we should replace it with Hitler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's true, and yeah, the 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 USA has stood its ground so far, so. <laughs> Yep, yep. Yeah. Well, <laughs> leaving the United States behind, shall we move to our Canadian story this week? 
Yes, let's do it. All right. So next up, we have an article called Indigo May Have Lost the Plot, written by Nicole Dirks for The Walrus. Uh, Indigo is Canada's only nationwide bookstore chain. Uh, and this article is about their decision to expand beyond books and sell all sorts of other things, like blankets, umbrellas, sex toys, pinball machines, barbecues, and rowing machines. Uh, this plan has not worked. The company's profitability has been going down. Uh, and some people are worried about the business collapsing entirely. Uh, but unlike the American chain, Barnes & Noble, uh, which has refocused on book selling, uh, Indigo sounds like it will be doubling down on its lifestyle goods approach. Mm-hmm. So, Kier, have you been to Indigo lately? I have, actually. Yeah, I was there For the a barbecue day. or pinball machine? <laughs> what were you getting? I actually <laughs> went there for a book, and I had this funny oh. experience where uh-huh. I went on, you know, the computers they have in the store to try and find mm. my book, and the computer said it wasn't there. So I got mm. on my phone and went to their website, and I was like, okay, maybe I'll stop at a different Indigo on my way home. Mm-hmm. And the website said the book was there. So <laughs> hmm. <laughs> I tracked out an employee and indeed the book was there, but their own mm-hmm. computer in their own store didn't reflect <laughs> that, you know? And I just couldn't uh-huh. help but feel like, wow, like something it, like either, I don't know, maybe it's a fluke what happened, you know? Sure. But like if I go into your store and I like am told that you don't have the book that I'm looking for, like that's not yeah. good. And that kind of feels <laughs> like maybe, yeah, the books are like being de-emphasized to the point that totally. like the tech is like not being maintained or something. I don't it, know. That does seem like sort of the fundamentals would be to get that system right. Right. But uh, <laughs> they did, they quoted um, their, their new brand platform called Life on Purpose. Uh, and I, th- mm. <laughs> I thought this quote was very funny. Uh, so I thought I'd read it aloud. So the official brand purpose of Indigo. Uh, Indigo retail stores reflect a transformation from a bookstore to a next generation cultural concept store. A physical and digital meeting place inspired by and filled with books, music, art, ideas, and beautifully designed lifestyle products, all aimed at simplifying its customer's journey to living with intention. Wowza. What the heck does any of that mean? <laughs> <laughs> they, they, so they didn't mention that their computer should be able to look up their inventory. That's not... That didn't no. make the cut. But <laughs> uh, Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think, like, the article was really interesting in, like, the super divergent paths of Barnes & Noble versus Indigo, right? Because it was, like, totally. talking about how Barnes & Noble was, like, okay, we got to get all this other crud out of here. Like, no one is, mm-hmm. like, I need a battery. I'm going to the bookstore, right? So they, yeah. they really, like, cleared house. They gave their store managers, I thought this was really interesting. They gave yeah. their store managers, like, total control over ordering, right? So that mm-hmm. it basically they're trying to, like imitate local independent bookstores because those are actually yeah. in general doing quite well so they're trying to have a more curated experience right like make it so that it's not just what you expect when you get there that there can be surprises and kind of deep mm-hmm. cuts and that type of thing right that sounds brilliant right and so the idea that indigo is like huh it really hasn't been working for us to sell barbecues and <laughs> whatever else let's sell mm-hmm. more of those things like like it, the article yeah. said, like Ottawa's store is going to be selling beds 
and Toronto is going to be selling <laughs> beer and vinyl. Like, uh-huh. it's one thing to sell, you know, journals, pens, maybe mugs and blankets, right? Like, yeah, kind of reading related things. But like, again, who is thinking to themselves, like, I need a barbecue. I'm going to go to chapters. Right. <laughs> Nobody. Totally. Right. No. So they're relying yeah. on like impulse purchases. It seems like, right? Yeah, or, or trying to at least. It, it feels like sort of Barnes & Noble, their thought was like, we got to like double down on the book people. Let's make it like a really good store for book people. And Indigo sort of thought, there aren't enough book people. Let's make this a great store for everyone. Even if you don't like books, there's something for you <laughs> at Indigo, which I have to think turns off the book people right. and doesn't seem to have... I mean, on, on the other hand, I have bought someone really nice fuzzy socks at indigo for christmas before uh because they had them in stock and so i <laughs> it does you know it's one of those things that doesn't seem like absurd on its face to me but the weird part is trying it and then it doesn't work and then being like we're gonna keep going down this path <laughs> yeah totally well and it's interesting too because i guess like chapters is owned by indigo and there's chapters yep. branches and indigo branches chapters are like book heavier um mm-hmm. and, and chapters like as long as i've been going there they have other stuff right but it's just the majority of their floor space is books and indigo it's yeah. like it's hard to find the books in there right and it's true <laughs> and like in general like i love independent bookstores i like do my best to go there and, and support mm-hmm. them but um you know i live out in the suburbs and like so often, you know, if it's like 6 p.m., 7 p.m., I'm like, oh, I'd love to go to a bookstore. There's only one, right? And, and it is an Indigo or a Chapters. Yep. And there's lots of small communities where it is only that. That's the only bookstore there, right? So yeah. I guess I feel a bit more <laughs> invested in this company than in most large multinationals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. But I, I did find it a bit strange, the idea that... um. I don't know. Maybe it's me like overestimating how the market could adapt, but it's it seems a bit strange to me that like this one chain of bookstores, like if it were to go under, I I would wonder how much does that actually affect like the number of books sold in Canada? Cuz mm-hmm. it seems like like people are aware of other ways to buy books mm-hmm. and you know, a town that had like a thriving indigo uh that made a bunch of wrong decisions and had to close you'd think that same town could support like an independent bookstore. No, Um, it's true. And like, it's not ideal if there is like one company that can like sink or swim like Canadian presses, right. Who are like largely reliant on Indigo for their purchases. So yeah, again, like maybe it is. But the, (laughs) the part that confuses me about that is like Indigo is like the middleman, right? Like at the end of the day, wouldn't there still be the customer out there somewhere who wants to buy the book? from the well, canadian press or am i oh yeah well but here's it's like the a thing. marketing thing oh yeah like the the distribution like like presses mm-hmm. small presses like rely on the distribution of indigo right, right. like like <laughs> they're, to get, just to get the books in front of people sort of thing oh yeah yeah no it's mm. it's a huge like that would be them sort of taking on like a whole other task right when you have like and most Canadian presses are run by like very few people with limited resources. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, it was like when the Canadian wheat board, you know, Mm. (laughs) there used to be a board that bought all the wheat from all the farmers and then sold it. And then all of a sudden every wheat farmer had to somehow figure out where in the world 
they could ship their wheat to, right? Like it's that that yeah. distribution part of the this the chain of purchasing is like not to be underestimated of like how important it is and how much like logistical know-how and resources you need to be able to pull it off yeah yeah i suppose that does make sense yeah it sounds like they were like really taken out by uh their um Mm. hacking or their cyber attack that happened (laughs) right yeah that was sort of an undercurrent of the whole thing is that like last year earlier this year they had like a ransomware spring. a ransomware attack that like broke all of their systems for several weeks several months <laughs> like that they it couldn't take wild. online orders that sort of thing yeah the uh, website was offline even the stores struggled to process debit and credit transactions right. uh employee information was compromised all of it their baking info social insurance numbers <laughs> da, da, da. uh yeah it was a, a huge mess and i guess the company's yeah. been a little um quiet about just how much it cost them but it sounds like it was definitely in the millions and possibly in the tens of millions yeah yeah which is which is bad (laughs) but again sort of seems like the sort of uh thing that might happen to i mean i guess it could happen to a lot of companies but like if you are focused on your fundamentals uh you'd think maybe like it security being able to search the inventory in the stores uh I don't know. Yeah, it, it seems like the sort of thing that might happen to a pretty distracted company that is uh, trying to, like, transform the way we buy books. Um, yeah, for And sure. not sort of just, like, a, a plain old business that has stores and sells books. <laughs> yeah, the day-to-day functions that you rely on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the coming yeah. years. Yeah, it, it does sort of remind me of the, the story we talked about earlier to do with, like, you know, will news be able to find uh, like a business model to be able to continue funding important journalism? It's sort of like a let's hope also bookstores they mm-hmm. have tr- their struggles <laughs> and also like contribute to society. So hopefully uh, they keep going too, <laughs> which yeah, makes absolutely. me think. What do you think? The state should the state run bookstores? <laughs> uh, Liam, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I mean, I don't see a need for that. I think if you know the circumstances yeah. were such that that was like the only option, or um, that that was like much superior than maybe, <laughs> but it's hard for me to imagine that because independent bookstores seem to be doing a great job. Yeah. well should we move on to the quiz for today let's do it okay so um today's quiz uh has to do with how things change over time Mm. uh and how businesses adapt to changing markets that sort of thing Mm -hmm. uh because it came up with uh, the story about news sources and the story about indigo uh so my quiz today is about the 10 most valuable businesses in the world uh, oh, wow. based on how much it would cost to buy all of their shares. Uh, but the question specifically is about turnover. I've got two lists in front of me. One is the 10 most valuable companies in 2003, and the other is the most 10 most valuable companies in 2023. Oh, wow. Uh, and the question is, how many companies are on both lists? Oh, my gosh. I love that question. So it's like, despite all the changes, all the competition, everything that has happened over the last 20 years, how many companies managed to stay in the top 10? <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna say five. 
The answer is one. <gasps> really? Yeah. With Microsoft, the, company? Is, Microsoft is the only company that was number one in 2003. And uh, now it's number two. Wow. But the other nine completely turned over in 20 years. <laughs> Wow, are there any like themes you notice? Like, are there a lot more techno yeah. technological companies? On Tech the new list? is the big, uh, the big thing that mixed it all up. the The top mm -hmm. five are all tech now: uh, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, which is Google, Amazon, and Nvidia, who make chips. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, so those that kind of company now is uh, more valuable. In the past, let's see, we had a bank. We had a couple oil and gas firms. Yeah. We had a couple pharmaceutical firms. But uh, yeah, those have all been unseated in terms of who's going to make the most profit. <laughs> That's pretty remarkable, honestly. Like, yeah. because oil and gas and pharmaceuticals, like, those are not uh, <laughs> itty bitty <laughs> little companies usually. You know? No, no, not at all. Well, and there's, you know, it's not, you know, who makes the top 10 isn't a huge. You know, no one, you don't get a prize for that. But uh, yeah, mm -hmm. it definitely says something about sort of the pace of change. And all right, I think it does at least that uh, there's a lot of turnover in the world, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, that, and the idea that uh, like the big newspaper businesses have faltered since the internet, like, yeah, maybe that's to be expected. <laughs> yeah, totally. Hopefully some of these things are little blips, you know, in the longer scheme of things. Totally. Yeah. And, mm. you know, replaced with something better would be great if that can happen. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you have any guesses for who's going to be on that list in 20 more years? Ooh, well, probably Microsoft. <laughs> 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 Maybe OpenAI. That would be my oh. guess for a new, new contender. But uh, mm -hmm. we'll see. And... I don't know. Maybe something to do with outer space. That would be cool. We'll live <laughs> on the moon by then, right? That's how the future is going to be. We'll oh, live on 100%. the moon. Yeah. I've already got my bag packed. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been Hot Take Think Tank. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>